Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Our learning uh, this afternoon uh, is entitled, uh, Is the Human Being Divine? Um, and uh, this, this, this question in some ways is, is, is related to one of the areas that I'm thinking about in my research uh, currently, which is what is the nature of um, identity, selfhood, human nature uh, for, for the Jewish mystic, for, um, for the Kabbalist? Um, and, um, and one of the core dimensions of that question is what philosophers... Um, have characterized as the philosophy or the ontology of personal identity, right? So in other words, um, what is the, what makes a person a person, right? Um, and how do we define the nature of a person? Um, now let me, before we get into some of these texts, so one of the ways in which... Um, in which uh, uh, the Kabbalists characterize this is, is as a kind of tension between um, uh, body and soul or spirit and uh, physicality. Um, and uh, in one famous text uh, by, um, uh, by Chaim Vital also, a 16th century uh, Kabbalist, at the, beginning of, at the beginning of that text, not, not, uh, not in this particular spot, uh, he says, Haguf eneno ha'adam atzmo. The body is not actually the person. Ha'adam hu ha'pnimiyut. The person is the inwardness. Ha'adam hu ha'ruchaniyut. And the person is the spirituality or the spirit? And this is a very interesting question, interesting definition, um, because for the Kabbalist, the very nature of the person uh, as a definition, as an identity, is grounded in the soul, is grounded in the, the eternity of the spirit and the soul, um, and so, therefore, the nature of the person endures through time as we know it. The Kabbalists believed in, were big believers in the theory of reincarnation, what they called Gilgul, Gilgul and the Shamot, where essentially the identity of the person travels through many different physical lifetimes. In other words, what you know as yourself in this physical body is but one garment among many to the true identity, which is the spirit. Um, and this, to some extent, even though, even though reincarnation um, is, might seem a little bit more uh, out there, uh, the, the idea of the soul as eternal is actually a relatively popular common-held belief, right? In other words, people tend to believe, or at least many have believed, that, that the soul of the departed endures. And the question is, what does that mean, right? Well, then, so then what is the actual identity of the person? Is it, is it the person who, who lived this physical life? Or is it that soul and that, that spirit that endures essentially eternally? Now, 
um, once we understand that, that that as a core belief and principle of Kabbalistic thought, um, then the idea that we're going to see here um, is taken to an even further level. Let's say, well, where do these souls come from? Right? If the soul and the spirit is the essence of human identity and personhood, right? not the limited, finite, mortal body, which is but one garment among many, even though you, like me, right, we only really know ourselves through our embodiment and our physicality. So that's a larger question that we will want to ask, right? And I'm not necessarily sure that I really believe this myself, right? Um, or whether our identity is so tied to our physicality and our embodiment that we can't separate it. But this is what they, what they believed and what many great Kabbalists believed over a long period of time. So, if, so, once, so once we start with that premise or that, I, that notion that the essence or the true nature of humanness is the spirit and the soul that travels across many f- physical lifetimes, so to speak, well, where does that soul come from? And, and as we, we're going to see in, in the text that we're going to focus on today, the soul is born of divinity. Like the way a mother biologically gives birth to the child, right? In other words, that, that it actually emanates out, right? Emerges out of the spiritual body of God, so to speak. Or just emanates, like one flame is, is, uh, uh, kisses another, and, as it were, and, 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 and isn't diminished, but, but makes another flame, right? Or the way water flows and emanates. So, so our core question then is, if we can't really make a distinction, in other words, if this essence of humanness, which is the spirit soul, is emanated from the very self of God, doesn't that make that human soul divine? Right? It's not necessarily ontologically separate, as philosophers would say. Right? It's not necessarily separate in the sense of its actual being. Right? You could say, is the baby that is born of the mother, right? right? It's a larger question of when does that baby become a separate identity from the mother, right? Given that right, that, that gradually happens, right? And that's a question of medical ethics and, and so forth, and is a question in Judaism as well. But but given the fact, right, that that the baby that the baby first originates as a fusion of cells, right, of, of, of two other creatures, right, and then becomes part of, becomes part of the mother's body and then becomes, right? So, that, so our question is, um, uh, is, uh, is, there really a, um, is there really a true separation between humanness and divinity? Or can we, or can we actually say that the human being who is the soul spirit is actually a manifestation of divinity in this world. Right? That's the kind of the radical, that's the kind of the radical claim that I want to make, which is that from a from a philosophy of religion perspective, um, if the soul is essentially a light that is emanated out from the greater light of God. Is there true individuality that is separate from its divine source? Right? And that's kind of a radical question. Right? Where do we get this idea that there is a gulf between our human identity or separation between our human identity and the divine identity if our, the essence of our humanness is but an overflow from the essence that is God? Um, so that so that's that's the grounding question 
Well, isn't that, is, is there any difference between the question, is there any differentiation within oneness? Right? If there is only one, right. how can there be any difference in the stack? Yes, absolutely. So, 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 so it's it's intimately related um, to uh, to that very question, which is that if the mystic believes, which many mystics, if not all mystics, believed and believe that that actually everything is the one God, right? Everything is right, which is a kind, which is what we would call a monistic or pantheistic theology, right? That all is God, and there is nothing. There is nothing else, ein od milvado. And here I'm thinking of a few, skipping a few centuries ahead in in our time travel to uh, to to some teachings by early Hasidic mystics who said in a famous letter to one another uh, between two Hasidic rabbis, two Hasidic mystics, why do the misnagdim, the opponents of early Hasidism, why do they hate us so much? And he said because. Only the Hasidic mystic could explain it this way, because we know the secret that alts is God, that all is God. Kind of sit with that for a moment, right? All is God. The ain od milavado, and there is nothing else other than God, meaning that we are all part of God. Right. So, so there, so there, as as uh, as Rav Shmuley was was. I think, was Absolutely correctly pointing out, right? It's not. It's not simply that we are also, uh, divi- we are also little deities in that sense, right? We're not, it's not just that because we flow from God, therefore the human being is a god, but rather that it is all part of the oneness that is God, right? And there's no real separation. That's the. That's to some extent the radical point that the mystic is is making. There's no real separation. We are but an overflow of the oneness of God, which manifests in a trick of the mind, as the Buddhists might say, an illusion of the mind of our separateness to get us through the suffering that is life. Doesn't that create a little bit of a problem when you try to deal with the notion of evil once you describe the world in that fashion? Because if we're divine, where does the evil come from? Is it only the body? And there is, we have the divine spark, but it's the dawn body of us that creates evil. Um, yes, I think that that, that, is, that is definitely one of the, um, the natural questions that, that emerges from, from this point. And, and I think that the way that the Kabbalists answer that um, is, takes the radicalness, the radicality to an even further level, which is to say, therefore, evil... And is part of that oneness, right? So therefore, in the same way that you can have one body and right, an illness can manifest in one part of that body, right? But, but it's still part of the body, right? Um, that so too, there is a dimension that erupts as a kind of aberration from God's... Uh, Severity or God's justice side uh, that that when when perverted it bec- it turns into what's called the other side, which is the kind of the dark side, essentially, essentially like Star Wars, right? The dark, the Sitra Ahra, or the dark or the dark side of existence, exactly, right? And for the Kabbalists, because they were you know good good uh, medievals, uh, that also meant demons and all kinds of other good things that would make make for excellent children's books. <laughs> there was a phrase you used a few times, I think, last night and this morning, or today. And, and what was it? And there is no other, and nothing else? Nothing. Yeah. Is that from the scripture, or is that a Kabbalistic saying? So the statement, um, the statement of Hu Elohim ve'en od milvado is from the book of Deuteronomy. But what it was used... There, as, and I think it's also in Divrei Hayamim, if I remember correctly, in Chronicles. Um, but there it means, right, there is no God but God, right? Um, but but Ein Od Milavado is taken in a very radical sense. I'm thinking here in particular of a, of a very late Hasidic thinker, the Slonim Rebbe of, of late 20th century Jerusalem, 
who in his Nitivot Shalom interpreted that as saying that, that, the, that the deepest secret of emunah, the deepest secret of faith, is coming to the clarified consciousness where you realized she'en od milavado. There is nothing else other than God. It's not just that there's another, no other God other than God, because right? that's the original meaning, is that there's this one God and there's no other God other than that's, that's real or that, at least in the ancient Israelite context, that is as powerful, right? But, but let's leave that aside, right? If we're just sticking to the monotheistic, then it's just the one God and not two, right? But the monistic claim is that there is only the one God. There is only the one with a capital O and nothing else actually exists, which is pretty mind-blowing, I think. Um, so, so let's... Um, and, and I think just, just, to, just to tie up your, your question, um, part of what is, what is powerful, therefore, about Kabbalistic thinking on this question is that, therefore, when there is brokenness or evil or suffering um, in this world, it is essentially a manifestation of a rupture and a brokenness within God's own self, or at least an, a seeming brokenness, that then needs to be fixed through a tikkun, right? This is where tikkun olam comes from in the, in the way that we understand it now. The tikkun comes from, through positive human action, I'm able to bring that, I'm able to heal that brokenness, or I'm able to heal that, that ill part of the body of the universe, so to speak. So now let's, so let's, let's now try to ground some of this in some of the specific lines uh, from the handout. And, um, and, and so here we first turn um, to Moshe Cordovero, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, who was, um, this is, this is uh, mid-16th century Safed, Sfat, so the mid-1500s. And Cordovero, uh, or the Ramak, as he's affectionately called, um, was kind of like the Thomas Aquinas of Jewish mysticism. He was this, this immensely prolific um, scholastic-like uh, Kabbalist who um, wrote an, an, immense, an immense amount and, um, and I think wrote some of his most important works in his early 20s, right? So it kind of breaks open the, um, uh, the myth that you had to be 40 because some of the greatest Kabbalists were in their 20s and they didn't have a problem with it. Um, um, he wrote many, many works and he was the most revered Kabbalist um, in Tzfat, the northern land of Israel, right, um, famous for its famous for its as a Kabbalistic center because of figures like Cordovero and others who lived there in the 1500s, about half about in the decades following Gerush Sfarad, the expulsion from Spain, right. So there were there were many either either exiles themselves or children and grandchildren of exiles who resettled in the northern land of Israel um, at this time. It's sort of like, if you talk about, if you talk about 1540 or 1550, it's sort of, it's sort of even closer to, to that cataclysmic event than we are now to the Shoah, right, to the Holocaust. So it's kind of like that was the great catastrophe of Jewish history of, in their recent memory. Um, so, so some scholars have shown how these things do play out in some of their thinking. It's not really in the text that we're looking at, but that's kind of the historical context we're talking about, talking about in the half century after um, the most, um, the most uh, uh, cataclysmic event that Jews had experienced in recent memory, um, which, had followed, which had followed decades of, of, of much violence and forced conversions and the Inquisition and so forth. Um, so, so we turn to Moshe Cordovero uh, in a text from his Pardes Rimonim, which literally means the Orchard of Pomegranates, and uh, is one of his major theological works. And here he's talking about the nature of the soul and how it emanates from the Sfirot. The Sfirot uh, um, are the, uh, the dimensions of the one God, essentially. They are the emanation, the emanations of divinity. So when you talk about from the Sfirot, it means from God. So, um, so do we have a volunteer who would like to, to read for us in the English, starting with um, 
the emanation of the souls. The emanation of the souls is from the Sephirot. And since their emanations are from one source, that is, the Sephirot, thus necessitating that these persons would be identical, <coughs> owing to the equivalence of their souls, even if they varied according to the rungs of the Sephirot, nevertheless the variations would not be many on account of the fewness of sources. That is to say, the source of the emanation of the souls, which are but ten times in accordance with the ten Sephirot. Thus the souls became differentiated by virtue of their combination with bodies, to the point that one person does not resemble his fellow. These differences exist according to the aspects of the body, given that the soul does not have such differences. Okay, so, so here, this is, this is Cordovero really as a kind of religious philosopher, right? You can sort of sense the philosophical language of, um, of this. Uh, but, what, but what is his somewhat convoluted point? Sorry, Moishi. <laughs> we all have that same soul. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so it's actually so it's actually a really interesting claim about the about differences between people, right? Um, that is to say, right, and, and this and this could have, I think, very interesting constructive application at the theological moral level as well, right? As to say that we are all one body of humanity, right? And um, or here I'm, I'm extrapolating and, contempor- and contemporizing, contempor- well, making, making it contemporary um, in, uh, for our day, right, in the sense that, that all of the, all the differences between people that, that sometimes tear us apart um, or that sometimes make us treat other people as the other, right, the implication of this is actually that we are all part of God. We are all part of one uh, we are all part of one stream of souls, right? So, so you think that things are, you think, uh, right? This, and this, is where this is the flip side of, of embracing everyone, of embracing diversity, right? That's also, that's also important. But here this is saying that there's a unity that underlies that diversity, that we are all not just one family, we are all one emanation, we are one entity, right? And so he's saying the differences, right? The variations, um, the variation, there's a certain variation based on the ten spherot, right, which are sort of really apparent differences because the ten are actually one anyway. But it's really the souls became differentiated by virtue of their combination with bodies so that one person does not remember that resemble their fellow, right? So, so it looks like we're different because our bodies are different, but that's just the outer layer, he's saying anyway, right? That's really just, that's not the 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 essence of the person, right? And the emanation of the souls is from the spherot, right? And since their emanation is from one source, that it would, be, it would be necessary to say that these persons were actually identical or were actually of the same identity is what that really means, right? Um, So and 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 when the Kabbalists speak about language of emanation, right in the Hebrew, it's atzilut, right? Atzilut haneshamot. Um, th- this is their term of art to speak about a kind of unbroken flow of being, right? So it's sort of like the waterfall, the, the stream that flows from the hidden spring that flows all the way down, right? So that's the that's the kind of energy of divinity that's flowing from a place of hiddenness to its gradual manifestation in all the different rivulets that come down the mountain and eventually all the rivers and the streams and so forth. That's all one interconnected flow of water, right? So all of us who, at the point that there's a lot of differentiation, right, and you have all these different streams and so forth, but if you could really trace them all back to the one source, if you could do that, right, then you would realize that they're actually all one flow, right? They're all one, one um, energy. Um, and even though Cordovero is not speaking uh, to, to that question, or at least not directly, right, um, 
uh, especially now that I'm thinking about this now, this actually could have very powerful um, moral, spiritual applications in, in our day, right? In terms of trying to, in terms of underscoring the fact that we are not as separate from one another as we um, are so often um, conditioned to think. That's right. You see, and that's why, and that's why Kabbalah will save the world. <laughs> Do we have a phrase for this for this young this this, this young idea of collective soul, right? This notion of uh, that we're that there is this oneness not only of divinity but of our. Of um, uh, yes, in the sense that um, that for for the Lurianic Kabbalists, right, who followed Cordovero, and we're going to look at this in Chaim Vital, who was the main disciple, not this directly, but he who was who was the main disciple. Uh, and scribe, really, of Isaac Luria, who didn't write much, but was, was, is known as one of the great Kabbalistic teachers. Um, their theory of reincarnation goes back, ultimately, to the idea that, that all souls originate in Adam HaRishon, right, in first Adam. But in their vision of this, this is not just, you know... Um, you know, Adam Berkowitz in the Garden of Eden, right? Um, uh, you know, um, but, but, but is actually this kind of superhuman, gargantuan-like figure who was originally this great body of light in the, in the Lurianic Kabbalistic tradition, right? When God created the world, God created this gargantuan Adam HaRishon, who was this body of light. But when... When Chet Adam HaRishon took place, when the sin of Adam took place, then his whole body fell apart, right? All the, all the light um, was scattered into many different sparks, and he shrunk down to human size and became Adam Berkowitz, right? <laughs> um, and eventually was expelled from the Garden of Eden. But all of those fragments of light from his original body of light became the roots of every soul that would ever be. So actually, and all those roots of souls evolve and fragment into many different branches and, and so on and so forth. So there are many, 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 many reincarnations that flow from that. But if you are a master Kabbalist like Isaac Luria, you can look in a person's face and trace them, them back to their root. right? But... Why is this important? Why do I mention this in particular in relation to Rav Shmuley's question? Is that actually we are all traceable back to Adam HaRishon, right? We are all traceable back, not just to first Adam Berkowitz, but to, sorry, it has a nice ring to it, but, but actually to, um, but actually to this, this first primordial body of light, right? So the, or that we are all part of the body of Adam in a kind of, profound sense, right? Um, and that all of our souls, which are also emanations of God because that body of light was essentially over, an overflow of divine energy in the act of creation in that myth, we are all part of the body of Adam who is also part of God, right? So it's all one taking on different manifestations. Sounds familiar. It's all one. You're going to leave here with that message. It's all one. Don't forget it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Humanity, or humanness as we know it, begins in brokenness. Um, and so original sin, or chet adam harishon, right? It's, I mean, it is actually a Hebrew, Hebrew Bible idea that's central, then becomes the cornerstone of Christianity for sure, but it's also a cornerstone of Jewish thinking and particularly Kabbalistic Jewish thinking, right? So, so that everything changes at the moment of Chet Adam HaRishon for the, for the Kabbalists, right? It shifts from this kind of large metaphysical version of reality to this broken human state of reality that is constantly yearning to get itself back to a state of, of healing and redemption. And ultimately, the world will be redeemed 
when ultimate tikkun takes place, when all, right, that's, that's why each soul has to perform a whole set of mitzvot over many different physical lifetimes. That's why you become embodied in, in the Kabbalistic theory of reincarnation, is because you can only perform mitzvot when you're in a body, and mitzvot are crucial to the repair of the soul. Right? So that's their theory. So the mitzvot are essential, but they are also mechanisms by, for the repair of the soul, which is ultimately, ultimately, ultimately yearning to become reintegrated back into the original body of Adam, ultimately reintegrated into God, and that will be the ultimate redemption of the cosmos, right? a kind of restoration of the perfection that was at the beginning. Redemption as restoration, or messianism as, as ultimate restoration. Yes, uh, so that, that's the, the grand Kabbalistic myth, a, 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 a very, I think, lucid and, and, um, and learned um, uh, description of this, uh, is an analysis of this is, is now found in a colleague of mine's book, Lawrence Fine, Physician of the Soul, Healer of the Cosmos, Isaac Luria and his Kabbalistic Fellowship, it's published in 2003, um, and there's a among other things, there's discussion of this that we're talking about, versions of this, but also the, that larger myth of, yes, that there was this, right, first there was just the pure light of infinity of Ein Sof, and then Ein Sof engaged in a tzimtzum, or a retraction of part of itself to make space and space for a creation of the world and place these vessels, right, this is the, the famous myth of, of Luria, right, place these vessels to hold the divine light, but they were too overwhelming, so, the, so those broke and scattered into the kind of darkness below. And then there was the creation of Adam HaRishon, and all these things were happening, right? It was a successive, successive process. Um, yes? Is there another story of the um, source of all of our souls that is not Lurianic? Another Kabbalistic story on the source of all the differences of our souls that's not the Lurianic story? <laughs> Well, the, the, uh, I mean, a, a lot of this goes back to earlier Kabbalah, centuries before, uh, centuries before uh, Luria. I mean, first, the Cordovero precedes, precedes Luria in that text that we were just looking at. But even if we go back to earlier texts like the Zohar and others, uh, the Zohar also has a, a strong focus on the nature of the, the divine nature of the soul and of reincarnation and, and so forth. So, right, that of the different souls are, you know, how... how the, the, the ones, you know, the Ain Sof manifesting, and instead of we all have one soul, <clears throat> well, Cordovero is saying the, our, bodies, our bodies cause the differences in the soul. Well, yes, though, though, though even, even, in that early, even in the earlier Kabbalistic renditions, it, it's, it's ultimately um, that there are different soul, there are different souls, there are different soul, uh, well, the soul sparks idea is, is, a, is more strongly reflected in Lurianic Kabbalah, but even the idea that one has to engage in, that reincarnation takes place for the restoration of different uh, parts of the soul, right? That the soul is made up of, of uh, uh, ultimately five different major parts, uh, that each have to be repaired in different physical lifetimes. Um, let's let's so let's now actually let's let's turn to the other side uh, other side of the handout, um, which is a text from Chaim Vital's Share Kedusha. Chaim Vital, um, as I mentioned before, is the, one of the main disciples of Isaac Luria and, and the author of a lot of the m- most influential. Um, and voluminous works of Lurianic Kabbalah. And, um, and here there's another really powerful evocation of this idea. Um, so do we have a volunteer who, um, who could start reading for us? And I'll, I might interrupt you if, if a thought jumps out at me. If you'll forgive me, I hope. Please. All these become a chariot to the light that is drawn forth from the lights of the ten spheros that are within the, the world of Asiyah, which are in turn contained within four foundational elements in order to give them life. 
Yes. Um, as you can skip the Hebrew. The, the, um, right, so, so the chariot for the light that is drawn forth from the lights of the ten spherot. And they are... And they are within everything or the most interior of all. So too is this the way it is in regard to what is contained within the persons from the spheres of Asiyah and from three other worlds. Yitzira, Beria, and Atzilut. Right. So, these, so these, are, these are the four worlds of divine becoming and creation and, re, and, uh, and of cosmic reality. But the core point for our purposes is that each person has within them the lights of the ten spherot that are drawn from each of these different dimensions of becoming and reality. Right? So in other, words, in other words, that the very nature of the person is composed of these universal elements. And you might compare this, right, to, to um, advances in modern physics. Not that I really know very much about that. But it, essentially that we, right, that we are all, we are all interconnected matter, right? We are all manifestations of stardust and so forth, right? So we are all, we are all um, uh, ma- uh, instantiations of something transcendent or something beyond what use of the universal. Um, let's, and let's, let's read on, though, because this continues, continues to develop nicely. The light of the Aquarius souls is inward and higher than the light of the Aquarius angels, and thus they are its servants. <clears throat> For it is through that light of the Aquarius souls that their light and life force is drawn forth from the ten spherotes unto them. So the light of the Aquarius souls... It's through that light that the light and life was drawn forth from the ten sphere. So, so, so this is a kind of poetic uh, rendition of, of a similar point, right? Which is to say that the that um, that first of all, first of all, the energy of 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 the being of souls is described as radiance, as light it, itself. And it comes from this quarry of souls, right? Um, like, uh, like the way, like the way rock is 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 hewn from the larger rock quarry, right? But it's kind of a quarry of light, right? This is this is the way poetry has the power to metaphysical light. This is the way poetry has the power to expand what we do with language and thinking, right? So metaphysically, there's this quarry of light from which the light of souls is hewn. And all of that is part of the light of God. Now, the idea that God is a kind of light, right, or is an ontology of light, a being of light, is something that we see in a number of mystical traditions of different religious faiths. Uh, It's very dominant in, in Kabbalah. And the idea is that God is this luminous metaphysical being, and therefore... Um, and therefore, when the human being contemplates and attaches themselves to that, that metaphysical being of light, they achieve enlightenment or illumination, right? And, and right, there's a kind of luminosity to the mystical experience. Though here, it's not just about that I achieve light in the mind as a lighting up through that connection to God as light, but also that I am, right? There are all these little lights, these little sparks, that flow from that great flaming fire that is, that flaming light that is divine being. Let's continue. The greatness of the soul. The greatness of the soul is further clarified insofar as it is a light that is born and drawn from the light of the ten spherotes themselves, which is not through an intermediary. Okay, so, so this is very interesting. Um, and, and the language of that it is born and drawn from, right? Mit mit yaled unimshach meor hasfirot atzman, right? So it's it's born. This is this is why I mentioned this imagery of birth, right? Which uh, which is which itself I think is quite telling, right? That it's 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 actually born from in the language of leida, right? In the way that the baby is born of the mother. And nimshach is drawn forth, which is also language that we see a lot in Jewish mysticism, of a kind of drawing forth of the energy, and it's drawn forth from the light of the spherot themselves, atzman, right? So it comes directly from the light of God. 
and not through an intermediary. Shelo al yedei emtsai, not not by way of an intermediary. There's a direct emanational link and birth link between the the human self as spirit light and God as spirit light with a capital S and capital L. Um, and, 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 this, and this birth imagery is, is further clarified, right? Um, for this reason... For this reason are they called children of the Lord your God, for they are like a son who grasps hold of his father and is drawn forth from him. Now, um, now, the, now b- because, because of the androcentrism or male centrism of Kabbalistic thinking, Immediate, they immediately go back to fathers and sons, right? The, albeit the, the, the image of Leda and of birth um, is, um, uh, is, more, more, is more obviously more naturally, uh, more natural for us to think about it in terms of the mother giving birth, though, though truth be told, uh, Kabbalistic, um, Kabbalistic myth and theology uh, is is relatively unique in that there actually is a feminine dimension to divinity that is part of the part of the myth, right? Which is not the case with um, with the non-mystical elements of the tradition. Uh, but but this is significant. This is banimatem la right? You are that's why you're actually called children of God, not not metaphorically, literally. Right? Not metaphorically. It's not just that, right, our Father in heaven. It's not, it's not, it's not just a metaphor, it's not just really a metaphor, but it's actually we are actually born of God. The same way that the child is bio- biologically emerges from the biological parent. Right? It's, it's actually a very, very bold statement, and therefore. Right? This, because it's been spiritualized, therefore our spiritual essence has the spiritual DNA of divinity in the same way right, that the biological child has the physical DNA of the biological parent. Um, and that DNA is, is the light, you might say. Right? It's that essence, that metaphysical reality. And this is the secret... Now, this, so now, now, um, uh, what does this mean? Now, this was a an old tradition that we find already in in ancient rabbinic midrashim, which is related to ancient Jewish mysticism. Why does it say the fathers are the chariot? It's kind of enigmatic in in its context, but the way it's being understood here is that the avot. Which means that the person is the divine chariot, or is if the chariot here is part of the divine self, they are part of divinity. Hain hain, right? It is it is the same. There is a kind of identity, a kind of direct continuity in reality, in being between the divine realm and the human realm, right? The fathers are the chariot, but here's also going to give a further explanation for why this language of the chariot. Um, a, cha- a chariot for... A chariot for the light of the ten spirit that rides upon them, not through the intermediary of another light. All right, so this is both poetically rich and, and very evocative, right? A chariot... So the person becomes now, right? It's it's not it's not just what I was saying that that it's a connection between the person and the divine chariot, though that's also part of what's being implied. But here it's saying that the person, the 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 av, the father, or the or or just the person, is um, a, becomes a chariot or a kind of vessel. For the light of God that rides upon them. Person becomes a chariot for the light of God that rides upon them. 
and not through the intermediary of another light, right? It's kind of, he's underscoring that point again, like he said before, not through an intermediary, but it's direct, right? God literally, directly dwells in you. In fact, God actually manifests. And regard, God dwells in you like God dwells in a chariot in the way that God's spiritual DNA dwells in you, you might say. This is the secret of... This is the secret of Israel, you in whom I become glorified. And the human garment is his glorification. So this, so, so this is a very powerful statement, right? Yisrael asher et pa'er, right, from Isaiah. Um, Israel in whom I become glorified. The human garment is God's glorification, or even more specifically, as he's going to, more particularly, as he's going to say momentarily, the human being is where God becomes manifest. It's a very bold and powerful statement. The light of the souls. The garment for the light of the ten spheros. And this is the secret of my beloved has descended to his garden, which is his world. So the garden, so, so this is fantastic, right? So, the, so, so Olam Hazeh, this world, is, is the garden of the beloved, right? And it is a quote from the Song of Songs, right? And the beloved is, right, is, this is a, about the love relationship between God and Israel. But when it says here um, that my beloved has descended to his garden, that means that God has descended to the garden of Olam Hazev, this world, and has put on the garments of this world, meaning human beings. Human beings are the garments of divinity in this world. It's a, a, really an extraordinary uh, idea. right? The light of the souls is a garment for the light of the ten spherot. Right? And if the ten spherot are God... Right then, the light of then the souls of of the human the soul of the human being is the levush is the garment for divinity and it is the realization of God's descent into um, into this world and manifestation in this world and that there's a kind of loving yearning of God to become manifest in this world, to come down to the garden of this world and to become enwrapped in this cloak of humanity and to bring it to its culmination as if it could get any better. This is the secret of So this is the meaning of you who cleave to God. Right from Deuteronomy, which is a complete conjoining with the light of the ten spherot. That is to say, right in your in this is this is the mystical ideal of. Achdut of unity, or what's called unio mystica in the Christian tradition and elsewhere in, in comparative mysticism, right? That the yearning of the mystic is to realize their oneness with God, right? That underlying point that we've been that we've been making. But this yearning for the you shall cleave to God, you shall achieve this devekut with God. It's a complete conjoining. It's a complete oneness, right? Which and if it's a complete conjoining, then it's, it's, it's a merging of that identity, right? That which is not the case with all other creatures. That's an interesting point, right? It's about the, na- the, nature, of, the nature of humanness is such that in this moment, those lights become, become unified, right? And the statement of Israel, right, whom I become glorified. So there it's specifically talking about the people of people of Israel, but, but it certainly is, I think, a broader statement about how God's light yearns for and becomes imminent in and present um, in, this, in this world, like the beloved coming down to the, to the garden, garden of Olam Hazev, this world. Um, 
but that moment of right, it's 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 kind of it's kind of it's there's a spiritual eros, uh, both of the use of the song of songs that the beloved yearns to come down to the garden, and then they join together and they become unified, they become one together, and the the two lights are merged, the light of the soul and the light of the sfirot are merged together, or perhaps they are re-merged because they originated in a, a unity to begin with, right? The light of the souls um, emanates from and descends from on high, and then the light from above misses the light and, and says, I'm coming, my beloved, and descends down into this world to become cloaked in that light below. Could you say that again, that little nugget there about the... So, so the so so we we see at the at the beginning of the text, right? At the beginning of the text, the the light of the souls that that define humanness emanate from are an overflow from the very self of the light of the spherot, or the light of God. It descends into this world without any intermediary, right? Directly, but then and then. When they're in this world, then it's it's almost as if God the beloved or God the right or <clears throat> right God the one of the, the two lovers misses the light that was originally part of God's self, and so says, My right, my beloved has descended <clears throat> to his garden, or it's said of God, my beloved has descended to his garden, because God says, Okay, I I, I miss you, and I'm gonna come down now to the garden of this world to to, um, to become enwrapped in you, to become one with you. And then there is a kind of human reciprocation, right, in this moment of spiritual eros. There's a kind of human reciprocation of, that's the secret of you who cleave to God, of Atem HaDvekim, right, which we, we say, by the way, for extra points, when do we say Atem HaDvekim, Badunai Lechem, Chaim Kulchem Hayom? Sound familiar? Out of the Torah, exactly, right? So, so, that, so that, that citation from Deuteronomy 4, um, right, from Deuteronomy 4, 4, right? that, that's what you should do, right? The, you, should, you should be the ones who cleave to God. So, there's, so that's, the, that's the reciprocation of the divine yearning to come down to the garden that is this world. Then the, then the human light also engages in an act of conjoining of, with the light of the ten spherot, and then there is this complete act, there's this complete unity. What do you think? In, actually, I'm backing up a little bit to the complete union. Um, St. Paul talks about this, this, uh, the soul that is with the Lord is one spirit with him. Yeah. And in Galatians, he develops <clears throat> the idea that the our being children is more than metaphorical. Mm. You know, it really is this ontological mm. reality. Um, and in the Gospel of John, which you alluded to last night, there's a few things where Jesus says things, and now I ascend to my God and your God. Mm. You know, like like putting... Yeah. yeah. Right, the, right, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, right, the Word was with God, and then the, and then the Word became incarnate, right? Yeah. The Word became flesh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, but, yeah. Yes, and and I think and I think that right. So that's 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 reflected. I think of a that's reflective of of deep commonalities between um, Jewish mysticism and Christian mysticism, yeah. or or Jewish mystical ontology and certain elements of Christology. But 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 not. But it cuts across a number of different religious traditions. So I think so. I think that we see we see some very important. Um, in 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 mysticism in particular, we actually see some very. Um, powerful resonances between different traditions. You can see on the one hand, there's a lot that's very tradition-specific, right, both in Christianity and in the Jewish material and in Sufi material. In other words, words, it's a kind of interplay between universality and contextualism, or particularity, right? On the one hand, you have different traditions that are made up of different Symbolic, symbolic layers and histories and cultural practices and so forth, and those are real and different. And at the same time, there are deep streams that connect them, right? So especially in the mystical context, we talk about 
certain unitive experiences, right, certain notions of the oneness of things in all the ways that it's articulated, or the idea of God as light and the human being as light yearning for that, right? This is something that we see in different religious traditions, like you mentioned, and it's found in other sources, especially in Christian mysticism, um, that show that there's something almost of the deeply human, or Rav Shmuley had mentioned earlier about, about the idea of of Jungian archetypes or Jungian connections, right? Are there, are there deep substrata of the religious imagination and religious psychology and theology that are reflective of our common humanity, right? Which makes sense, right? In the same way that we, right, we have certain psychological similarities across cultural divides, or we have, right, in the same way that we have similarities in our, in our physical natures and so forth, we also have certain ideas that repeat, right, that are almost part of our, our deep humanness, and yet they also manifest, and that, that's true, for, let's say, for the idea of reincarnation as well, right? We find this in Native American, um, Native American Indian traditions at the same time that you find it in other places in the world that, that don't seem to have had any contact with one another, right, because these relate to deep questions of life and death and Right and spirit and body and right? so these are these are kind of perennial human questions, but they also manifest theologically and and anthropologically in specific cultural contexts. So I so I kind of would want to argue, and I usually would want to argue for a kind of intermediary point between the uni- universal and the partic- and the contextual. I in that, same with what you said about the the bridegroom, if you will, missing the. I mean, I was drawing a blank when I was thinking of New Testament ideas of that, because I think that is more Song of Solomon stuff. But you know, the final scene in the, scene in the Apocalypse, the Revelation, is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Well, you have, there's, there actually, there actually was, there was a, a flowering of mystical interpretations of the Song of Songs um, in, um, in 12th and then 13th century Europe, both among Jewish mystics and Christian oh, mystics. Yeah. There's an interesting essay about this that was written by Arthur Green called um, uh, uh, The Shekhinah, Virgin Mary, and the, and the Song of Songs. <clears throat> Shekhinah, Virgin Mary, and the, and the Song of Songs. Um, and it's, it's about a 50-page article appeared in the AJS Review, Association for Ju- uh, Jewish Studies Review. By Green? Arthur Green, yeah. While well, we're on books, and it's okay to recommend your own, do you have a favorite or best introduction to Kabbalah? Um, so, so, for, so I, I would. So I'd mention I'd mention a few things. Uh, the um, so I would I would also mention another another work by um, by Green called The Guide to the Zohar, um, uh, which which has a chapter on. Um, on earlier Jewish mysticism before before Kabbalah, an introduction to the Ten Sfirot, and is in the context of the Zohar, but it's but it's um, it's broader than that. Um, there are a few other a few other very valuable. Um, uh, there there are also there are also important uh, primary source collections. Right? There's a there's a there's a, a wonderful volume of, of, of translated sources by Daniel Matt called The Essential Kabbalah, and that has a, a valuable introduction <clears throat> as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a new introduction by Pinchas Giller called Kabbalah, Guide for the Perplexed. Um, and um, uh, there's also a volume by, um, uh, by Joseph Dunn called Kabbalah, Very Short Introduction. Uh, but but still, there there are you know, and, th- and then if you kind of want to go to the to the next level, even even though even though Gershom Sholem's major trends in Jewish mysticism is very dated, right? It was from 1941. It still is a great classic of Jewish scholarship from which one can learn an enormous amount. Um, and there's also an important work um, uh, called. Um, uh, there's also important work called Kabbalah New Perspectives by Moshe Idel, I-D-E-L. Um, and, uh, and then another, another actually very, very valuable work to, to look at, which includes, um, <laughs> which includes a, lot, a lot of sources, but with a lot of valuable introductions as well, is called From the Depths of the Well. Uh, this, was, this was edited by Ariel Mays, M-A-Y-S-E. Um, 
and uh, in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of the the Zohar and kind of the development of, of scholarship into the Zohar, um, there's uh, there's uh, a fair amount of of contextualization about this also in my in my recent book, uh, the Art of Mystical Narrative. Um, there's a lot a lot of good stuff. I probably I probably left off a few a few other things that I would recommend. That'll be enough. That'll get you through. That'll get you through. I'll get you through the week. Yeah, one here and one here. Okay. So, I'm, I'm a little hung up. Um, I, I, I got so into the light of the Torah and its souls that um, it, it um, permeated the rest of what you were saying. So, and, and you mentioned. That's Torah. good. So you were meditating on the quarry of souls. I so, um, I heard the rest of it through the lens of that, which I suppose is okay. But, you know, you talked about the poetic nature of it. So, if you could just riff. A little bit because when you use the word quarry, of course, what comes to mind is the physicality and the stone, hewn from stone, and of course, now we're talking about light. But anything else you could add to to that image? So, so part of it, I think, is also related to a grounding text of Jewish mysticism, which was very, very important for the development of Kabbalah, which is called Sefer Yetzira, which means the book of formation or creation. And among the things that it talks about is a kind of engraving of the a kind of engraving and hewing of the primordial letters and numbers of reality, right? The world as linguistic and numerical in its essence. And, it's, and in a metaphysical sense, it's hewn from that first quarry of existence. It's called uh, Sefer Yetzira, the book of creation or the book of formation. Um, and a lot of early Kabbalah that emerged in 12th and 13th century Europe, in southern France and northern Spain, started also as commentaries on Sefer Yetzira. But there it talks about letters, letters and language and also numbers as the building blocks of reality. Um, which are primordially hewn, using that language of, of hewing, of chakak um, and chatzav in Hebrew, uh, from, the, from this quarry. Now, what's particularly evocative about this image, what's poetically evocative about this image, right, that it's a quarry of light, or we also see in the Zohar that there was a kind of a hewing, um, a, quar- a hewing, a carving out from the primordial ether, Right, which is a similar type of image. Well, what does it mean to hew from something that's ethereal or that's light? Right, it's not, it doesn't seem physical. It's almost paradoxical. Right, it is paradoxical, and to some extent, that's the point. Right, it's to say that it's that that think think of the first of all as as a paradox. It's meant to kind of perhaps open our minds beyond normal rational uses of language, like poetry does, to take us to a different way of thinking about reality through its very nature of paradox, but it's also that the image itself becomes so rich and inspiring precisely because it doesn't quite make sense, so it then becomes this surreal image, right, of, of light as is like a rock quarry, or ether is like a rock quarry, and so what does it mean to be hewn from it? It's kind of taking the language of hewing or of carving, but it's actually like seeing that as the primordial stuff of existence, is spiritual, right? It's not physical, it's metaphysical, right? And the primordial stuff of reality is that ether or is that, or is that light. And so therefore it's drawn from it the way you draw, carve out the rock from the stone quarry. Yes, exa- exactly. And it's like B'Tselem Elohim, just like this, just like in this sense, the light of the quarry of souls is drawn from the light of the ten sefirot. Right? Light begets light. So therefore, so therefore the tselem of light in this world that is humanness is a reflection of the light that is God above. Right? So instead of we look like God in terms of our physicality, we look like God in terms of our resemblance as luminous beings. <coughs> How are we doing with time, Rav Shmuley? Well, this will be our last question. So on the subject of cleaving to God, <laughs> at, at the... At the, at the end, uh, where I, I think you were saying that essentially we, we are inherently, and maybe the definition of cleaving is, can be different from one place to another, That's but right. that we're sort of inherently uh, cleaved to God. 
Uh, but in Deuteronomy 4.4, 4, 4, 4, the, you know, the full sentence is more like, you who cleave to God are alive today, as opposed to those of you who didn't, who died at the incident of Baal Peor. Right. So then, so is it inherent or is it not? And if it is, how come we have a mitzvah that says, cleave to God? If we do it inherently, why do we need a mitzvah for it? Um, yes, right. And, and it's, it's true, of course, that oftentimes in these interpretive traditions, they're, they're radically reading against the grain of the original literal meaning. So it certainly means one thing in, in, the, in that Deuteronomic context, and then the way that it's transformed means something else. And, but also even the chayim kulchem hayom, right? It means you're, so, so in the mystical version of that, you are truly alive by virtue of the fact that you connect to your divine source, right? It's not just that, it's not just that you were kept alive and weren't punished by being punished with death, but rather that you draw your, your vital sustenance, your vitality, your, your very life energy from connecting to God. And in this sense, the imperative, right, or the command of that, right, you should cleave to God, you must cleave to God. Um, like, just like it says uh, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, right, right, as a kind of imperative. So that love is a... Is a is 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 a is an is this spiritual imperative to be to connect one's light back to the light of God, just as God's light of yearning of of right that, that God God has loved you with a great love, right is is reflected in this statement of my beloved has descended to his garden, right God God has expressed God's great love for the human by trying to become enclosed in the human, and the human expresses this love for God by trying to bring the light of their soul back to the light of the ten spherot. But, but ultimately, it's all one. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Fishby. Yeah. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.